0: I was reading this week this story about a missionary in Brazil. He used to run a camp near a river, and on the days when the temperature reached 120 degrees, he was tempted to swim in those waters, but was leery because of those man-eating fish. His neighbors assured him, though, that only while swimming in schools do piranhas bite people, which they never did in that part of the river. So each afternoon that summer, the man cooled off in the river. Months later, he heard that a local fisherman had fallen out of his boat and was never seen again. Alarmed, he asked his neighbors if perhaps the man had been eaten by these man-eating fish. Oh, no, came the reply, only while swimming in schools do piranhas bite people, and they never swim in schools around here. Well, why not around here, he asked. Oh, his neighbors casually replied, they never swim in schools where there are alligators present. Corrupt information sometimes leads to incorrect practices, (laughs) sometimes very dangerous ones. Before his famous circus days, P.T. Barnum ran an animal museum in Lower Manhattan, and people enjoyed the exhibit so much that uh, they would stay for hours preventing other patrons from coming in and entering. Being an astute businessman, Barnum devised a method to ensure the departure of these people, these customers who overstayed their welcome. Over the cage of the tigress and her cubs, he placed this large sign, tigress. Then over a doorway next to the cage, he placed another sign. It said this, to the egress. Thinking they would see another curiosity, many patrons trooped through the door and they found themselves right out onto the street again. Corrupt impressions sometimes breed corrupt expressions. Warren Wearsby told the story of an angry church member who scolded her pastor for preaching a blistering series on the sins of the saints. After all, she argued, the sins of Christians are different than the sins of other people. Yes, agreed the pastor, you're absolutely right. They're worse. They are worse. Infinitely worse. Why? Because not only do they break God's law, but they break God's heart. As we've been studying this book of Malachi, the prophetic words of God's messenger, they may seem to you like a blistering indictment on all of us. Let me add some clarification. They are. Sometimes we as Christians may think that we can get away with a few isolated sins here and there, and they won't eat us up. We may feel that we can cut a few corners and overlook a few things. God's forgiving. It's under the blood. He's gracious. It's all good. What we fail to remember is that lurking underneath the surface of that kind of an attitude is a danger that will eat us alive. Because as Warren Wiersbe again points out, when a believer de- deliberately sins. It isn't just the disobedience of a servant to a master or the rebellion of a subject against the king. It's the offense of a child against a loving father. The sins we cherish and think we can get away with literally bring grief to the heart of God. And bringing grief to the heart of God is what the people of Malachi's day were doing. Hadn't always been that way, though. When they first returned from their captivity, historically, they were zealous for God. Under the leadership of Ezra, Zerubbabel the governor, Joshua the high priest, and Nehemiah the governor, the temple had been rebuilt, and revival had come to the Jews. But a hundred years had passed in Malachi's day, and the enthusiasm had worn off. The people and priests had slipped into this mechanical observance of their faith. And God sent Malachi to wake them up. And as we've seen, he's not messing around or walking on eggshells, is he? And the most painful part of preaching these messages, I'll just have you know this, is that he points the convicting finger of truth first at the leaders. So if you think these messages are hard for you to hear, I can assure you they're no picnic for me to preach. Will Rogers once said that the history of North America could be written in three phases. The passing of the Indian, the passing of the buffalo, and the passing of the buck. (laughs) And I want you to know that when the Word of God says, and now... This commandment is for you, O oh priests, as it does in the opening verse of chapter 2. The buck stops here. God's extremely concerned about what we are impressing upon people as pastors, teachers, and Christian leaders. That's exactly why we can turn in the New Testament and read passages that are extremely and tremendously unsettling, especially to people in positions like mine. James chapter three and verse one says this: "Let not many of you presume to become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly." want to trade places. He does not look lightly upon those who, through their corrupt teachings and false religious practices, lead people away from his gracious presence. And that's precisely what the leaders of Malachi's day were doing here in chapter 2. And God came down on them pretty hard. In Malachi 2, verses 1 through 9, God's convicting words have an equally explosive impact on the church of Jesus Christ today. This text clearly and forcefully puts forth a timeless principle, which I've summarized in a few words, that when God's leaders defect, God's people derail. Corrupt impressions do breed corrupt expressions. People derail from the faith when leaders defect from the truth. And so God speaks soberly, not only to His chosen leaders, but also to all of His chosen people, challenging all of us to reinforce, maintain, and uphold the truth. Look with me at Malachi chapter 2. I'm going to read the first nine verses for you. Follow along, if you will. And now, this commandment is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already, because you're not taking it to heart. Behold, I'm going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge and men should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction." Are you upholding the truth as you lead people? As you lead your families? As you lead your small groups? As you lead little children out in the nursery or in the Sunday school classes? How do you know if you are in danger of getting off track? How do you know? How can you tell if your pastor, me, your elders, the worship leaders, your small group Bible study teacher or facilitator, or your favorite Christian author, radio or TV preacher, are heading off course? How do you know? This text Outline some blatant characteristics which help us identify the pattern. People who drift away from the truth are characterized first, according to this text, by a depletion in their passion for God. The first four verses talk about that. If you don't listen, God says to the priests, if you don't take this warning to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, and I'm going to send the curse on you. I'm going to curse your blessings, and indeed I've already cursed them because you haven't taken this to heart. I'm going to rebuke your offspring. I'll spread refuse on your faces, and you will be taken away with it. Then you'll know that I have sent this commandment to you. Are you viewing your Christ, let me ask you, your service to Christ as a burden or a privilege? Admittedly, there are times when ministry gets tough, but in the process, are you losing your passion for God in whatever it is you're doing? And by the way, as Christians, we all have a ministry and we should all be doing something, whatever that may be. Are you losing your passion for your desire to grow in Him and to be holy even as He Himself is holy? See, in this day, serving became a job to these priests, and and they no longer viewed it as a privilege. The initial motivation to glorify God had eroded into a self-exaltation, if you want to put a term on it. And when they stopped feeling good about what they were doing, they didn't want to do it anymore. And God hit them hard right there, hit them all hard. He says, here's the commandment. If you don't take it to heart and start getting back on track, and start honoring me, you will be discarded. I'm going to put you on the shelf. You will be unusable, and you will be humiliated and trampled upon by everyone around you. That's basically what he's saying here in verses 2 and verse 9. And as priests, they had been given a privileged position. And that position demanded faithfulness, truthfulness, and commitment. But if they weren't going to listen to God's warning, God said, they're going to be doomed to suffer the consequences. And these priests, by the way, you know, we're in the habit of not taking God's warning to heart. Israel's stubbornness had a long history. And you can look up all kinds of Old Testament scriptures. But the fact is, lest we think the Old Testament speaks of the spiritual stubbornness of God's people, only about the Old Testament people, think again. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 4 Says that a time will come when people will turn a deaf ear to the truth and they will embrace myths and heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Remember that verse? God wants our attention on this matter. Does he have yours? He's got mine. Not one of us can sidestep God's rebuke here. To those who would not listen, God promised four things in this text. Number one, he was going to reverse their blessings. He says, "I'll curse your blessings. Number two, in verse three, he's going to rebuke their offspring. They would no longer continue that priesthood on to their sons and daughters and descendants. Thirdly, he said he would remove them from service. In verse three again, and these are some very harsh words, he says. I will spread refuse on your feasts, on your faces and the refuse of your feasts. And you will be taken away with it. God promised that if their passion for God was not awakened, he would, in other words, disqualify them from ministry. And he uses some very graphic language here. By smearing the refuse from the sacrifices that they used in the feast on their faces, they would literally become unclean and be disqualified for service. The refuse left over from these sacrifices was traditionally taken outside the camp and burned. You can look at that in Exodus chapter 29 and Leviticus chapter 4. Basically what God was saying here is, I'm going to rub your noses in it if you don't wake up. If you don't value the ministry that I've called you to more than what you're doing, I'm going to take you out of it, make you unfit for it. Now, i got to tell you, friends, that those words stop me dead in my tracks. Dead in my tracks. And prompts me to do a little self-evaluation. Do these words arrest you at all? Are we taking our calling from God for granted at all? Even just a little? Do I treat God with disrespect in this office? Am I in danger of getting put on the shelf? See, these words bear a striking resemblance to Jesus' words in Luke chapter 14, verses 34, And 35, you recognize them. Therefore, salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Remember those words from Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount? You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, what good is it anymore? Are we salt that has become useless and tasteless? I believe we, the church, must pray. You and I must pray unceasingly for an unstoppable passion for God. Because not only did God say here that he would reverse their blessings, rebuke their offspring, and remove them from service, but he said they would re, he would reduce their status in the people's eyes. Look at verse 9. So also, I have made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. These words speak for themselves, don't they? How many well-known Christian leaders over the last few years have been humiliated and despised in people's eyes? Not because they've taken a strong stand for Christ, mind you, but because they have abused the privilege of their call instead. And we're all in danger of that. God wants His representatives, you and me, to have an unstoppable passion for Him. His warning needs to be taken seriously. And the priests of Malachi's day were not only characterized by a depletion in their passion for God, but secondly, by a defection from the precepts of God. Look at verse 5. End of verse 4. That my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth. Unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. Malachi is saying here that effective leaders not only have an unstoppable passion, but they also have an unalterable message. The truth. When God established the priesthood of Aaron and Levi, It was one of intense privilege for them. The covenant arrangement God made with them was to be unaltered. But the priests of Malachi's day had completely destroyed the credibility of this great privilege by not following through with their responsibility. In a word, you know what they were doing? They weren't doing ministry anymore, they were just doing time. Putting in their time. Because their hearts weren't right it resulted in all kinds of abuses in the ministry. They didn't teach the truth. They didn't carry on their evangelical responsibility. They gave wrong counsel, they did not care for people, and they actually drove people away from the faith. Their faith became a ritual with no reality behind it. God pointed out the fact that true faith is not expressed by simply following a set of rules and liturgy. There has to be a heart behind it. There has to be a heart behind it, coupled with a huge amount of reverence and respect for the holiness of God. And I bet some of you can relate to that. Some of your minds are going to places right now, and you're thinking about applications. Here's a simple practical example that might take you a little bit by surprise. When I was a child, I was, many of you know, I was brought up in the Roman Catholic Church. And I went with my parents every week. And in those days, I remember them clearly. You walked in the church and you didn't talk in church. You didn't run around the auditorium. The kids weren't allowed up on the platform unless they were being baptized or getting blessed by the priest. We didn't bring toys and food or drinks into the church sanctuary. It simply wasn't the time or the place. I was taught that church was a holy place where you revered the name of God. It was a place to show respect for God. Now, you, you can say that that is ridiculous if you want to, but as I look back on that, I realize that was a very healthy thing. A very healthy thing. I know that a building is just a building. I know that the true church is made up of people, not sheetrock, not marble or concrete or gold-plated things. But I also know that when I enter a church building to worship, I have a different feeling about it than when I walk into a gym to play basketball, don't you? Or a hospital to get healed. And there should be a difference. This place functions differently than a gym or a hospital, doesn't it? A formal restaurant is a lot different than a McDonald's, isn't it? And you feel different when you walk in there, and you act different when you walk in there. And the fact that God is omnipresent shouldn't lower the respect and honor paid to Him in the sanctuary. Rather, it should raise the standard of our reverence for Him in every other place that we encounter Him, i.e. the kitchen, the bedroom, the grocery store, the skating rink, etc. Is that not right? Why do we always bring things down to the lowest common denominator? When I was a kid and someone wanted to get serious with God, you walked in the doors of a church and you sat there quietly and reverently, and you had a feeling like you were in some kind of a different place. What do we have today? What do we have today? Is there a place that you go that you can feel differently? that you can meet with God. Not that you can't meet with Him in your kitchen, but you have a holy place, a place that is set apart specifically See, these priests here in Malachi had fallen so far away from a reverential attitude toward God that it led to their complete defection from the covenant they were to uphold. They needed a renewed heart. They needed a respect for the truth, and they needed a return to God. They needed what David pleaded for when he became convicted of his own backslidden state in Psalm 51. Look at Psalm 51 just for a second in verse 10. Very, very familiar words, but they should be a prayer. We should pray these words rather than just read them. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Verse 12 Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. What a great prayer that is. These are the characteristics of a person who has a right relationship with God and is not in danger of defecting. Interestingly enough, Malachi outlines the same five elements in verses 5 to 7 of chapter 2 as this Psalm 51 verses 10 through 13 do. Let me outline them for you. Number one, a person who has a right relationship with God was not in danger of defecting from the faith, there is joy in his or her faith. Verse five, again, my covenant with him was one of life and peace. He revered me and stood in awe my name. Life and peace were elements of God's covenant with Levi. The power and the ability to perform service and the privilege of ministry were God-given gifts to the priesthood of Levi. The life of that priesthood was characterized by blessing, wholesomeness, oneness, and harmony with God. It was a joy to be called into that service. Every Christ follower in this room right now with an earshot of my voice has in their possession a God-given, God-empowered, God-controlled ability for God-centered service. It's called a spiritual gift. It should bring us joy to use it. Does it? Are you using yours? If you aren't experiencing joy in your spiritual life, maybe you've forgotten the purpose for which you were given the gift. It's for God's glory, not yours. So there is joy in his or her faith. There's also, secondly, humility in his or her spirit. He revered me and stood in awe of my name. The attitude which colors every leader's service should be one of reverence, and awe. Not, oh, I got to do this again. <laughs> but, ah, oh, I get to do this again. And they even pay me for it. Unbelievable. For the last couple of weeks, our worship team has led us in many songs today. Lisa led us in many songs of humility, self surrender. I bow before you, I'm falling on my knees. Literally, I stand in awe before you." We sing the words, but are we really in awe of God's name? In his work, God in Search of Man, a philosophy of Judaism, noted Rabbi Abraham Heschel, decries the loss of wonder and awe in modern man, He said, the surest way to suppress our ability to understand the meaning of God and the importance of worship is to take things for granted. Do you take things for granted? I'm reading a book right now by a guy by the name of Francis Chan. It's called Crazy Love. In the first three chapters, all he does is outline God's magnificence in the universe example after example after example after example for three chapters and by the end of it you're like in awe of god and that was his whole point to give you a sense of humility how many days do you get up in the morning and you blow through your regular routine and you jump in your car and you complain about the fact that oh i hate winter in maine it's so freezing cold out here unless you have an electric car starter And then if it doesn't work and you go out there and say, why didn't this thing work? And you blow to work and you miss all of the glory of God's creation. You don't see the sunrise. You don't thank Him for your breath. How many days and one day turns into another and turns into another, which turns into a week, which turns into a month, which turns into a lifetime. And then one day the doctor calls and says, you've got cancer. All of a sudden, all these things start to become visible again that we've taken for granted. We come to church and we take a lot of things for granted. And I've said these words over and over again, but I have to keep reading them to remind myself as much as you. Annie Dillard quoted this so many times, but it's such a great quote. They remind me just how ill-prepared we are when we come before the God of heaven. She says, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us out to a place where we can never return. There must be a humility in our spirit when we come before God. Thirdly, characteristic of a person in a right relationship with God that is not in danger of defecting is there is truth on his or her lips. verse 7 For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. There's anything emphasized in this passage of scripture. It is the fact that a priest is to be a person of truth. And you and I are priests. I've already pointed that out in previous messages. The leaders that Malachi addressed here were not people of truth. A priest was to be a preserver of God's word, the true instruction, as it says. They were to be reliable. True instruction, in verse 6, was in his mouth. According to the revealed Word of God, Psalm 119, verses one, verse 160 talks about it. John 17, 17, Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. They were to be reliable, they were to be ready. Have it right on the tip of your tongue. True instruction was in his mouth. And the same standard is demanded of leaders in the New Testament church, in Titus chapter 1 and in 2 Timothy chapter 2, but it's also demanded of every single Christian in 1 Peter chapter 3, 15, when he says, always be ready, always be ready to give an account for the hope that's within you, sanctifying Christ as Lord in your heart, and be able to give it with gentleness and respect. They were to be reliable, they were to be ready, and they were to be relevant men should seek instruction from his mouth, it says in verse seven, for he's the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Anybody seeking true instruction from you? French philosopher and Christian mystic and social activist Simone Weil said it well. She said, to be always relevant, you have to say things which are eternal. God's people are destroyed, Hosea said, for lack of spiritual knowledge. People should be able to seek truth and find it through God's people. And especially through those in leadership positions. But today there is so much junk out there that it's extremely tough to weed out what is true and what is not. Reminds me of the guy who was, while he was washing his hands in a restaurant restroom, noticed some handwriting above the hot air dryer, said this, push this button to hear a tape-recorded message from the local pastor. That's a serious message, really. To leaders, myself included. Because if we're not taking the time to hear from God, then our so-called words of instructions will be nothing more than a lot of hot air. Plain and simple. Howard Hendricks said it this way, and I love this. He said, in the midst of a generation screaming for answers, Christians are stuttering. As the church of Jesus Christ, could it be said that we have truth on our lips? Are we reliable and prepared and ready, relevant? Or does society view us as completely irrelevant because we do not know nor do we live the truth of God in our lives? A godly leader, person that is in a right relationship with God and is not in danger of defecting, has joy in their faith, humility in their spirit, truth on their lips, but also they have reality in their walk. Verse six, second part of the verse, he walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. This means that a person is hearing from God regularly through the disciplines of study and meditation on the word, prayer, solitude, and is upholding God's standard in his life, both personally and professionally. In other words, a leader should walk with God, not just when he's on stage, but also when he's off stage. A Christian should walk with God not just when they're at church, but when they're outside of church. In his book, Being Holy, Being Human, Jay Kessler tells this story. Phil Donahue, the television talk show host from years past, is something had something of a reputation for giving clergy a hard time And he had said that the reason he's that way is that he has little respect for them. Most clergy will do anything for some media attention, is what he said. In his autobiography, however, he tells about an encounter with a pastor who was very different. It happened while Donahue was a young television reporter in Ohio, and one day he was sent up to West Virginia to cover a mine disaster. He went by himself in a battered little car carrying a minicam to film the story. It was so cold when he got there that the camera wouldn't work. So he put it inside his coat to warm it up a little bit, enough to run. And in the meantime, the families of all the trapped miners were gathered around. They were just simple mining people, women, old men, and children. And several of the trapped men were fathers, were their fathers. Then the local pastor arrived. He was kind of rough-hewn and he didn't speak well at all, but he gathered all those families around in a circle and they held one another in their arms while he laid his hands on them and prayed for them. And as all this was going on, Donahue was still trying to get his camera to work and he was incredibly frustrated because he couldn't film this poignant scene. Finally, finally, after the prayer was over, he managed to get the camera operating, and so he told the pastor that his, his camera wasn't working, but now he had it working, and asked if the pastor could please do the prayer again so he could film it for the evening news. Donahue says, by the way, that he's been with the world's best-known public figures, including preachers, and they're all willing to redo a scene in order to get it on the news. This simple West Virginia pastor, however, told Donahue in these words, and I quote, young man, we don't pray for the news. I'm sorry, but we've already prayed, and I will not pose, unquote. Donahue remembered that pastor with respect. He said, you don't forget that kind of character no matter who you are or what you believe. Are you posing or are you walking with God? We have to ask ourselves that. To have someone point at you and remark, he walks with God or she walks with God is probably the greatest honor anyone could ever pay you as a believer. It implies even greater intimacy than the statement, he follows the Lord. How about it? Anyone saying that about you? People should say that about us. You realize that those words, he walks with God, are incredibly scarce in the Bible? and they've only been attributed to a few people, Enoch, Noah, and yet at the same time, the Bible urges all God's people to, quote, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. That's what he desires. And that kind of life requires discipline, requires honesty, a glaring lack of pretense and pride, requires death to self. Malachi says it's marked by peace and uprightness, meaning spiritual harmony with God and moral integrity with people. And nothing, nothing has changed. Those things still should pervade the character of today's Christian. Why, why, why doesn't it most of the time? John Wesley, in addressing a group of fellow preachers, pointed out part of the problem. He said, why are we not more holy? Chiefly because we are enthusiasts, looking for the end without the means. We want lively programs, thriving evangelistic programs, and glorious worship with social sensitivity but we are often unwilling to pay the price for such success. And the price of that is spiritual discipline. People who are not in danger of defecting from the faith exhibit joy in their faith, humility in their spirit, truth on their lips, obedience in their walk, and one more thing, according to this text, a burden on his or her heart. End of verse 6 says, And he turned many back from iniquity. And then verse 7, For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Bill Hybels calls that a holy discontent. Seeing people in a saving relationship is so vitally important to them that they have to do something about it. They can't just sit still. They can't stand it if nothing's done about it. People with a holy discontent understand the truth of James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, which says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Remember back in Psalm 51, David... After falling into his sin, recognized his need of this kind of a renewed heart for God, and he prayed those words that we already looked at. Look at him again. Look at him again. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. You can write right in your mind, in the margin of your Bible, those same five things that I just outlined in Malachi 2. A joy in our faith, verse 12. Humility in our spirit, again verse 12. Truth on our lips, verse 13. Obedience in our walk, verse 10. And a burden on our heart for the lost, in verse 13, sinners will be converted to you. People should be able to seek truth from us as Christians because we are what Malachi calls a messenger of the Lord Almighty. Isn't that what Jesus gave us a mission to do? To be the messenger of the Lord of hosts? We're people sent with a message, aren't we? We are ambassadors for Christ. We bring the message of God to people. And if we do not do it, the sad result is what we find in verse 8. The derailing of God's people. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. They had done the exact opposite of what they were supposed to have done. Instead of preserving the truth, they pioneered sin. Instead of turning men back, they tripped them up. Instead of confirming the truth, they corrupted the covenant. Are we in danger of doing the same things? The principle is as relevant today as it was then that when God's People defect, God's church derails, especially the leaders. Close with a little story from Max Lucato. This is from his book, A Gentle Thunder. He writes The faces of the three men were solemn as the mayor informed them of the catastrophe. The rains have washed away the bridge, and during the night, many cars drove over the edge right into the river. What can we do, asked one. Well, you must stand on the side of the road and warn the drivers not to make the left-hand turn. Tell them to take the one-lane road that follows the side of the river. But they drive so fast, how can we warn them? By wearing these sandwich signs, the mayor explained, producing three wooden double signs, hinged together to hang from one's shoulders. Stand at the crossroads so that the drivers can see these signs until I get someone out there to fix the bridge. So the men hurried out to the dangerous curve and put the signs over their shoulders. The drivers should see me first, spoke one. The others agreed. His sign warned, Bridge out. So he walked several hundred yards before the turn and took his post. Perhaps I should be second so the drivers will slow down, spoke the one whose sign declared, Reduce speed. Good idea, agreed the third. I'll stand here at the curve so people will get off the wide road and onto the narrow one. His sign read simply, Right Road Only. And he had a finger pointing toward the safe route. And so the three men stood with their three signs ready to warn the travelers of the washed-out bridge. As the cars approached, the first man would stand up straight so the drivers could read, Bridge Out. Then the next would gesture to his sign, telling cars to reduce speed. And as the motorists complied, they would then see the third sign, right road only, and though the road was narrow, the cars complied, and they were safe. Hundreds of lives were saved by the three sign holders because they did their job. Many people were kept from peril. But after a few hours, they grew lax in their task. First man got sleepy. I'll sit where people can read my sign as I sleep, he decided. So he took his sign off his shoulders and propped it up against a rock. He leaned against it and fell asleep. And as he slept, his arms slid over the sign, blocking one of the two words on his sign. So rather than read Bridge Out, his sign simply stated Bridge. The second didn't grow tired, but he did grow conceited. The longer he stood warning the people, the more important he felt about his job. A few even pulled off to the side of the road to thank him for the fine job that he was doing. We might have died had you not told us to slow down, they applauded. You're so right, he thought to himself. How many people would be lost if it weren't for me? Presently he came to think that he was just as important as his sign, so he took it off, set it up on the ground, and stood beside it. And as he did, he was unaware that he, too, was blocking one word of his warning. He was standing in front of the word, speed. All the drivers could read was the word, reduce. Most thought he was advertising a diet plan. The third man was not like the first, nor self-consumed like the second, but he was concerned about the message of his sign. Right road only, it read. Troubled him that his message was so narrow, so dogmatic. Should be given a choice in the matter, he thought. Who am I to tell them which is the right road and which is the wrong road? So he decided to alter the wording on his sign. He marked out the word only and changed it to preferred. Hmm, he thought. That's still a little too strident. What is best not to moralize? So he marked out the word preferred and wrote suggested. And that still didn't seem right to him. Might offend people if they think I'm suggesting I know something that they don't. So he thought and thought and finally marked through the word suggested and replaced it with a more neutral phrase. Just right, he said to himself as he backed off and read the words, right road, one of two equally valid alternatives. And so, as the first man slept and the second stood and the third altered the message, one car after another plunged into the river. Whether you are a pastor, a missionary, a musician, a worship leader, a greeter, being a servant of the Father is a serious calling. It demands the best that we all have as Christians. God's effective servants have an unstoppable passion for God, proclaim an unalterable message of truth, and ultimately will produce an unshakable people of faith. And that, my friends, is God's will for the church. People's lives, indeed people's souls, depend on it. Join me in prayer. God in heaven, you have sent your convicting finger upon my heart as I've read these words throughout this week. And it makes me more committed to preaching the truth hard or otherwise. And I'm thankful, Lord, that you have given us your word that we know is the truth. That we can proclaim it boldly and with humility. And point people to a relationship with you that they might be saved, that they might be rescued. Thank you, our Father, for the privilege, the honor, and the joy of calling us into your kingdom as your sons and daughters. We honor your name, and we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.